Hello, everyone, and welcome back to NATO's Road to Madrid, the CSIS podcast where we've been breaking down the main issues on NATO's agenda ahead and now after its historic summit in Madrid, which has just finally taken place. There is so much to unpack from the summit in the final few episodes of the Road to Madrid podcast will be doing just that. I'm Max Bergman, the director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at CSIS. Last week, I had the pleasure of attending what turned out to be an incredibly historic summit in Madrid, from Sweden and Finland having a clear path now to join NATO, to the new strategic concept being agreed to. The summit was also notable in how it approached EU-NATO relations, which leads us to today's topic. And my guest today, Vice Admiral Hervé Blejean, the Director General of the EU military staff, to talk about NATO-EU cooperation and the outcome of the historic summit in Madrid. Vice Admiral Blejean has had a long and distinguished career, rising through the ranks of the French Navy before taking on leadership positions for both the EU and NATO, including recently as Deputy Commander for the EU's Operation Sophia, Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations at Joint Force Command Naples, and Deputy Commander of the Allied Maritime Command in the UK. His background makes him the key speaker for all things NATO-EU, and this was an area we had our eye on going into Madrid. So it was great to pick the Admiral's brain on the summit outcomes and what he sees as the key work going forward. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Vice Admiral Blejean, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for, for joining us today. I was wondering maybe if we could get started by you can talk a little bit about what uh, Director General of the EU military staff does. Uh, we're, we're on the heels of this historic NATO summit. There was uh, very positive language uh, in the NATO strategic concept about NATO-EU collaboration. But I think there's also a lot of confusion about what the EU's role is when it comes to uh, the defense military side. So as someone in it, maybe you could describe what the uh, EU military staff does and what the EU's role is uh, in defense. Yeah, so, so, certainly. So. Uh, I will start maybe by by some historical point. So when EU was was created, it was uh, without any military or even defense chromosome in its DNA uh, by by conception. You know, after World War II, never that again. So we are pushing all the the troublemakers or the war actors on 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 the side of the intent. Uh, um, so the. Roughly, the, the EU started to see itself as a potential power needing uh, defense and, and security policy about 20 years ago, when, when the EU military staff was created, when the EU military committee was uh, created. And the command security and defense policy was even created later on with uh, by, by Lisbon Treaty. So it's kind of recent and uh, coming back to, to NATO, and then I will tell you what, what we are doing. Um, when, when we created this appetite for developing some kind of defense and security perspective, NATO already had half a century of existence. So we could imagine that that's, that created some questioning, at least maybe some, some frictions, and, uh, as, as, as we have seen. So the EU military staff role uh, is to provide uh, as the sole, until no, recently, the, the sole military organization within the EU institutions to provide the military expertise to all the EU institutions that need it. So I'm 
we are part of the external action service of the of the of the eu so we are kind of the military branch of it but i'm also providing expertise to the commission in the field of capability development and we are also providing um, all the support to the military committee uh, for for all the military advices and so on they are providing to the political and security council five years ago was also decided to create another body uh, called the military planning and conduct capability which is the embryo of operational headquarters uh, in in brussels uh, led by the eu and not only by one framework uh, nation so i'm also the director not only of the eu military staff but of the of the npcc and in that capacity I'm uh, uh, I'm the mission commander of all the EU training missions. There are four, four of them, and they are all uh, in Africa, uh, Sahel uh, for one, Central African Republic, Somalia, and the newly established in, in Mozambique. And just to add that, so I've been there uh, in that capacity for, for two years. Uh, it's an election process, so I've been elected by the church of uh, all the member states to be um, uh, in that position. Fantastic. Well, we just are on the heels of the NATO summit in Madrid. Uh, I was in Madrid. There was, uh, it's without a doubt, a historic summit to EU members uh, now have a clear pathway of, of joining NATO, uh, Finland and Sweden, and lots of announcements when it came to force posture. Uh, I'm, I'm curious first for your reaction to the summit um, and and, and then secondly, you know, there was a lot of focus on the NATO-EU cooperation language. Uh, how do you feel about that language? How does that sort of differ the, than the past? And what does that mean going forward? Okay, all right. So I can only have a positive reaction to that uh, NATO summit. Also, from, from my own nationality as, 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 as uh, um, and the nationality of one, one allied nation, I think I think it has been a great summit. Everything was not given at the beginning, but there are really there have been some some breakthroughs. So I would say this summit as as something kind of historical, also um, uh, having the confirmation of the uh, accession uh, possibility for Sweden and Finland. That that's that's very important. I've seen the the communique. Uh, it's also that was also the moment to adopt the um, the strategic concept uh, of NATO, uh, which is which is a good one. And uh, I must say, uh, the longest paragraph in that strategic concept, the paragraph forty three, is dedicated to the EU NATO relationship. And and it's not just to please us. I think that means because we have that momentum, especially enhanced by by the war. In, in Ukraine, that that no, we have shown the total complementarity uh, between EU and NATO uh, to tackle all, all the security and defense issues, respecting uh, each um, organization's mandate and I would say uh, DNA. That was also a very good signal that uh, the president of the Council was present, Charles Michel, the president of the uh, Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, was there as well was invited uh, high representative Joseph Borrell also they were uh, really part of that family picture because this is how I, uh, I I see it so so I think that's very positive and that's mirroring 
uh, also what the EU has done on its side with the strategic compass, with also a very important part dedicated to partnership, first of it uh, being, of course, the partnership with, with, with NATO. Great. Well, you know, you yourself are sort of the, I think, an embodiment of, of EU-NATO cooperation. You've had a number of roles uh, in NATO commands, uh, now in EU commands as well. And I see the strategic concept uh, printed out in there on your desk. Uh, I'm curious <laughs> where you see this now going forward. Uh, you know, where would you like to see NATO-EU collaboration five years from now, 10 years from now, the next strategic concept? What are we what are, what are your sort of hopes and dreams for, for NATO-EU collaboration, so to speak? First, I think that the, the biggest hope is that what we did with the strategic compass, what is the NATO strategic concept, there shouldn't be only nice papers on the shelf. So it's, it's, there are actionable papers, and that, that's the important thing. So that means in five to ten years' time, a lot of deliverables have to be put in place. We, we, it's, it's time to pass from, from, especially on the EU side, from, from words to, to, to actions. And I think both uh, concepts uh, allow, allows to do, uh, allow to do, it, to, uh, to, to do it. So what, what I'm looking like also, uh, I don't like the idea of, of sharing, you know, the, the, the dividing the words in different parts where NATO would be more relevant and, and EU would be, but but as, as a matter of fact, there, there are some, some areas where, uh, like Africa, where, where we see EU really looking at uh, the, uh, its security background or, or playground even, immediate neighborhood, uh, of course, uh, eastern flank. So that's all where NATO and EU are intertwined. And the, the most important deliverable would be to reinforce that complementarity. Uh, and, and the war in Ukraine, I think, has shown that. That's certainly the most important lessons learned for everyone, that the war in Ukraine has demonstrated, if needed, that there was no competition between NATO and EU, but a huge deal of complementarity because of their difference in nature. So NATO has been really consecrated as the collective defense provider uh, with all the augmentation of, of forces, of signals, of, uh, of forward presence, while the EU has been able to act outside of the uh, soft power image we had until now, uh, to act outside of the of borders of EU, for instance, with the sanctions, with the military assistance to Ukraine, and, and, and so on, and, and the great deal of coordination we had either with NATO or with allied uh, members of NATO. And of course, we are all thinking to the cooperation with the United States as, as a country, as an allied country. So, so I think the, the, the great thing about that is that, because for me it's a nonsense, but I do hope that we have put behind us any idea that there could be some competition, duplication, and so on. And the best signals of it are two EU member states deciding to join NATO. That means 23 out of 27 member states now will be in the NATO family. So the overlapping is, is so significant that 
that they may be even uh, confused by, by other partners uh, in, in the world between the two organizations. But also one very important thing is that also Denmark decision by their people to get rid of the opt-out posture, which was mainly based on the concern that what EU could develop on the operational field on defense and security would be uh, in competition with NATO. The fact that they, they decide to uh, think otherwise today, I think is also one proof that, that this competition doesn't exist. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more when you have uh, such overlapping membership. It's really hard for the two, for EU and NATO to, to be against each other when they're essentially made up of the same, same countries. Uh, I, I wanted to maybe unpack a little bit how the, the war in Ukraine, how Russia's invasion has invigorated the EU defense and military uh, components. Uh, and, and maybe you could unpack and talk a little bit about the military assistance being provided. The European Peace Facility has, I know, provided uh, 2 million euros. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your role uh, in that and, and, how, and how the EU has, has really responded to this crisis from a, from a defense and military perspective. The first thing I'd like to say is how suddenly, quick, fast, EU has been able to respond while our decision-making process are not that uh, fast, uh, you, you, you usually. We are cautious. Uh, we, we, we have to acknowledge that we need to find the right consensus between 27 member states. That means 27 DNAs. Uh, same happens in, in, in NATO, but, but NATO is a military organization by design, which is not uh, the EU. So the fact that from the first day of the war, in, in 36 hours, uh, the 27 member states agreed to put on the table a first tranche of 500 million euros to provide military assistance, including because that was 95 percent of that of that um, of that tranche, including lethal weapons to a country during a conflict, and we saw Finland, Sweden. Germany saying, well, we will deliver uh, weapons, we'll deliver lethal weapons and, and so on. I mean, has been has been really a revolution for, for us. I can say that uh, that way and has clearly demonstrated that that EU has been conscious that that uh, we had to, to get out of that soft power to enter the hard power uh, community, which is not that uh, numerous. On our side, um, uh, so I have, from, from the first day of the war, I've seen that, that member states were starting to announce delivery of equipment and so on. So we felt immediately the need to understand what was going on. I established a clearinghouse cell uh, inside the EU military staff. I have no authority or no power to, to tell member states what they have to do, but that was a kind of hub of information where we had on one side the list of equipment required by the Ukrainian side, on the other side, um, what member states, how member states could uh, answer to the, those requests. And, and from the beginning, we invited partners, we invited NATO. And so on this clearing ourselves, uh, very, very quickly, the United States, the, the, the UK, Norway, Canada, uh, but also other partners like-minded, like, like Japan, 
uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, they're all plugged in to have that discussion together to see how we can really organize the delivery uh, for the benefit of, of, of Ukraine. So it has worked pretty well. And it was also the first step for the support by the European Peace Facility. So the European Peace Facility is a, is a common cost mechanism. That means uh, it's not the EU budget. It's uh, every member states would participate to it with a quota portion pending their weight, I would say, with their GDP and, and, and different system and, and so on. So it's more a burden sharing or solidarity mechanism, but it's strong incentive for the member states to, to, to spend money. Today, we are added other tranches, so we have no selling of 2 billion euros that have been already reached. Uh, so we have to go further, and that, that's, uh, the, 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 that's uh, I would say, some internal thinking about how to, 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 to expand that. It, it worked pretty well because we saw also when the war changed of nature from the resistance to a full invasion to, I would say, a new phase of border uh, establishment between illegally occupied Ukraine and the free Ukraine. And by the way, borders that can be in the future EU borders, as, as uh, Ukraine has been granted the status of candidate. Uh, we, we saw that the, the nature of the requirements, without entering too much in details, changed also from kind of light weaponry, uh, very mobile, very agile, to heavy weaponry to establish a kind of frontline uh, war. And, and the member states made that shift thanks to all the information we, can sh we could share between us within the EU, but also uh, with, with a, a like-minded partner, especially with the United States. United States has also established an uh, international donor coordination center at uh, US UCOM in, in Stuttgart. We are part of it. We have a liaison officer there and, and we do the, the, some kind of coordination. Um, we, we can see that as in, in very, uh, very uh, rough shortcut as, as we are within the clearinghouse cell showing the incentive to spend the right way and, and the IDCC is redoing the, the work of the delivery in, in all the, 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 the aspects um, uh, needed. So really uh, that, that cooperation works very well. It's very transparent. We keep the necessary discretion, but there is nothing hidden from, from one side or, or, or the other. So it worked well and we need know to continue to 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 provide that support. I, I want to pick up on that because you know there's been uh, lots of announcements made by European countries by NATO members that they're expanding defense spending hitting 2%, Germany's 100 billion and the EU has put out uh, an initiative to spend 500 million to incentivize basically countries to work together to do joint procurements. And if we sort of think back to COVID, there was uh, a, a collective response on the part of the Europeans to buy COVID vaccines collectively, uh, the EU acting as the procurer uh, so that member states wouldn't be competing against each other. And this, while initiative not going that far, uh, tries to really create incentives for member states to not compete with each other by common elements, reduce some of the fragmentation that we see uh, within European militaries. Can you talk about how you see this uh, unrolling? How you, you know, what do you think the prospects of this are should there be more funding for it? What, is this sort of a trial balloon 
it strikes me as a real path forward for for the EU and defense and, and potentially really complementary to what NATO uh, wants to do. Yeah, well, this this uh, year, for 500 million incentive is, uh, I would say, the first step of uh, getting rid of this stove piping in the in the in the procurement. You know, uh, the European Defense Agency. That's what they have worked on and and, and fight against in some way within the EU, uh, because the the procurement are very uh, fragmented at the present time. I give you an example. We have within the EU. We have uh, 15 different kind of frigates to roughly do the same thing. We have 16 uh, different kind of battle tanks to do roughly the, the, the same thing. So it is common sense, I would say, a commercial common sense to deal uh, with the industry with the, the better critical mass to get the best prices, the best value uh, for, for, for money. So, so far, it has not work that much and I, I must say you were talking about the the the, the, the increasing defense budget you know that two percent of GDP was a target before I think no it's a new base uh, so so it's 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 an agreed base and when we look back at the difficult discussions we had year some years ago about that uh, we, we see also um, uh, the progress made. But we need to spend that on the on the I would say on the on a clever way or to, to, to get the, 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 the best uh, value uh, for, for for money. So the, the, the this incentive uh, it's mainly dedicated to replenish the stocks, the depleted stocks by what we have provided. So there will be it's not, um, and that will be, uh, uh, there is a task force with the Commission, European Defense Agency, uh, my, my staff and, and the service from, uh, from the External Action Service. It's not entirely established yet, but there will be some, some rules. And, and one rule will be, okay, you will benefit from that fund if you do joint procurement. So we have to see what, does that mean joint procurement? Is that starting at being more than one? So two, is that enough or more? Whatever. And, and of course, uh, uh, there will be, because we are talking about the EU, uh, there will be also some condition about where and to which industry that money could benefit. And that will be, of course, very focused in the EU uh, defense technology, technological base. Uh, which is fair enough, I, I, I would say. So we we saw that in EU, if I look also at the history of what I mentioned before about the defense and security, that we already we always had kind of bottom-up approaches. And at some point, the need to uh, uh, federate all those bottom-up approaches with a more top-down vision. That's what I think the strategic compass is answering to. We, we had a lot of initiatives, you know, the coordinated annual review on defense, the PESCO projects, the European Defense Fund, the European Peace Facility, all that were initiatives making sense, but the strategic compass aim is to put that, put all that in the same context, in the same coherency. And I think that that will be the same. I do hope that in five to 10 years time, of course, we'll have to preserve sovereignty of each member states, but 
I think that we would demonstrate that it makes sense to go to more joint procurement, which has been declining in the in the EU. You know, as we, we saw that all globally, all the EU has been increased uh, defense budget. By the way, it's uh, if you put all that together, if you put all the member states together, it's about 200 billion euros a year, which is three and a half times more than Russia, for instance, if we want to do some comparison. But in the same time, when we have seen this increasing, we have seen the joint procurement figure decreasing from 25% 10 to 15 years ago to 11% today. That, that's a curve we need to correct uh, because that, that, that's making more sense and that would give visibility to the industry as well to invest on, on production chains. And that strikes me that you would need to coordinate very closely with NATO to figure out on the defense planning processes. And maybe you could, you know, how how is that coordination? Uh, how does that work? Is that positive? Does it need to expand? Uh, is there close coordination? Maybe you could talk a little bit about just how the the planning coordination uh, works. Yeah, it's 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 very uh, I would say very coordinated. I'm I'm in charge of the of the procurement planning. So what, what I'm doing, in fact, in the EUMS or what my, my teams are doing is to, to measure the gaps between what uh, member states are procuring or developing as, as capacities and also what they are declaring to be available for the EU. And I'm measuring that against uh, the level of ambition of, of, of the EU within the common security and defense policy. So that's that's capability planning. That capability planning is completely aligned on the NATO one. Same four-year cycle. We do meetings together. When we go to the member states to discuss and to get what we need, both on NATO side and the EU, most of the time it's either joint meetings to, with the member states or back-to-back meetings. I have two liaison officer in shape, uh, um, uh, dedicated on, on, on that work. So uh, I would say it's very much aligned. And we have to consider the notion of single set of forces. I mean, we are not developing a set of capacities for capabilities for NATO and a set of capabilities for EU. I, I would say neither EU nor NATO own anything. The, the countries do. And, and, and member states do. And so that means at the end of the day, when it's time to decide uh, to use a capability because there is a crisis or, or so on, I mean, members, member states and allied nations are sovereign to see what will be their priority. Maybe sometime that would go for NATO, sometime that would go for EU, that would depend on the, on the, on the nature of the crisis so we, we, we have to face if if collective defense is at stake, of course, there would be no question about where the capabilities uh, in what framework they, they would be employed with the NATO framework. When it's a, a crisis management, uh, when there is no real threat within the, 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 the NATO territory, but there is a crisis management that can uh, really be important for security aspects like uh, against terrorism and so on. Maybe at the, that would be more the, the role for the EU to act uh, in its neighborhood. So there is an alignment uh, and, and also there is no competition because, because there is no 
such idea that you know each member state could dedicate one portion of what they have to EU, the other to NATO, and the rest for national purposes. It's all in the same basket, and it's all a sovereign act to decide what to do with the eggs we have on the basket. Great, thank you. With with the few minutes that we have left, I want to sort of shift gears. We've had a very, I think, interesting, detailed conversation getting into the weeds of NATO-EU cooperation. I want to sort of step back a little bit and talk about Russia and China. The, the challenge for Russia going forward is potentially a hybrid threat to the European Union after 2014. Uh, we, of course, saw Russia amp up its political interference. Uh, and the, the hybrid threats oftentimes are more of an EU capability or, or competency than uh, a NATO one. And I'm curious how you see the potential Russian hybrid challenges going forward. Uh, and then lastly, to sort of shift gears to China, you know, the focus, uh, the NATO focused a lot in the strategic concept on China, as did the EU in the strategic compass. What is sort of the EU's role increasingly in the Indo-Pacific in, in addressing the growing challenge of China? So two big questions to, to close yeah. this. <laughs> How many hours do you have yeah. left? <laughs> uh, I'll try to be, to be, uh, to be uh, uh, short. So on the hybrid uh, threat where, well, it's not new, but I, I think some courses of action has been revealed in the recent past and even before uh, the war in, in Ukraine. So we have first to understand what are we talking about when we are talking about hybrid uh, threat. You know, I like I like the definition that was given by a former secure on the NATO side, uh, saying where hybrid threat is what is beyond the threshold of war but above the threshold of action. So that means we have lived in this era of non-peace environment where things were going on and, and, and hurting uh, people and so on. And I, we can imagine all the development of the courses of action, which are revealed also even more with the war in Ukraine. For instance, we were all thinking hybrid threat, okay, it's cyberspace, it's disinformation, but we have seen also the weaponization of migration done by Belarus against some, some uh, EU neighbors, you know, you, I would say importing migrants to send them uh, as, as, as waves uh, to uh, other uh, EU uh, countries. That, that's an hybrid course of action. The food crisis generated by the war in Ukraine will be used as an hybrid tool because that will bring instability that will serve some, some interest, that will divide uh, support, that will divide partners. When, when we see, you know, what's happening in Africa with, with a lot of African partners voting in abstention uh, in, in the three, you know, big votes we had on Ukraine at the uh, UN uh, General Assembly. I mean, they are, they are sending us signal that we have to, to hear. And all that is, of course, fueled by those who have no interest in stability uh, in the world. So the, the answer to that, the EU uh, is developing an hybrid toolbox uh, that's called by the strategic compass, where we will try to put all the, the, the necessary answers to that, that could be through capabilities, but also through decision-making process to the, to, to the way of, of uh, operationalizing the, 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 the fight against disinformation, for instance, all, all these kind of, um, of tools. So it's not necessary 
uh, I would say, uh, material things, but also maybe more kind of mindsetting uh, way of of, of doing, having a collective uh, answer uh, to that. So, 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 I think that would be the world we live in for 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 for, for the next years. Uh, uh, there will be no no rest on that. We have to be conscious of that. On 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 China, I would say, well, we have a lot of concerns on both sides. We have, I think, a different phrasing of those concerns and could be a bit ambivalent. I I, I acknowledge that, uh, but but the EU side is considering both China as a potential partners partner in some in some areas, especially. We have a great deal of partnership in the, in the commercial and economic uh, sphere, but also we name it as a systemic rival. It doesn't please China, uh, Chinese authorities. By, by the way, I, as I understand, they were not very pleased by the phrasing used at the, uh, at the NATO summit and uh, in, in, the, in, in the communique. So I think in the EU, there is a bit more ambivalency uh, to maintain the possibility of always separating different things. Like, for instance, we absolutely do not agree with China is doing in South China Sea. And that's a uh, sailor speaking. It's a violation, obvious violation of, of, uh, of uh, uh, international law at sea. But at the same time, uh, we have been also very pleased to collaborate with them in the Horn of Africa to fight against piracy. So, so there, there are these this kind of, you know, nothing is either black or white, but there is also a gray area where we can find opportunities uh, to try to, uh, to, to, to find the, the, the best way to exist also in, in, in that sphere. But to be very honest with you, uh, certainly EU is not willing to have the, the, the I think it's vision ruled by a rivalry between two the two great powers that are the United States and and China. So so there is also the, the signal of the kind of independent thinking, what we can call uh, strategic autonomy autonomy in, in, in a way that has been that controversial um, uh, level uh, to to uh, look at how EU becoming not only an economical power but also a military uh, power in, in, in some way would deal with those uh, great uh, great powers. So so yeah, there are some differences, but but I think at the end of the day we should not have any doubt. We know who are our main partners. I think that's a a, a great point to to leave it on, Vice Admiral Blajon. It's been a, a real pleasure to to speak with you. Thanks so much for for joining uh, NATO's Road to Madrid. Uh, which has now been completed, and thank you for giving your kind of reflections on that. And I think the prospects for strong EU-NATO cooperation have, have only grown from both this war in Ukraine, but also from, from the summit. Thank you so much. You're definitely welcome. Thank you. That was another episode of NATO's Road to Madrid. Thank you to Vice Admiral Blajon for joining us and to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you also to the team at CSIS, my colleague Colin Wall, our lead researcher and project manager, and to our editor, Alana Nevis. If you like what you heard, please check out our page on the CSIS website. Subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice and leave us a rating and review. 
Our next two episodes will unpack the summit outcomes. We'll talk about how NATO can actually implement the level of ambition in the strategic concept and look ahead to the future. For written analysis on this subject, you can also go to the CSIS website where we have loads of content and analysis. Hope to see you there and hope you check in next time.